Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. All right, Patrick, we are back for another Q&A episode here on the Hanu Health Podcast. How are things going, man? Things are going good. good. I've got a trip coming up soon, so it'd be preparation back into the real bad world of traveling, you know. It was nice to get the reset for a few oh, months. No. So, yeah, so it's all it's all yeah. good. It's all taken it, it, it was a reset. Like, it truly was a reset. And it was one of those things, like, it's so funny just kind of how the mind works and how we work as human beings. Because, you know, one of the things that happened with COVID, obviously, for everybody is that for at least a, a, a period of time, which was like a six months to a year for most people, there was like barely n- any travel. And like, for me, there was no travel. Like, I didn't get on a plane for almost a year, which was super odd for me because I was flying just like you, I'm sure, flying around everywhere. But it was really nice. It was nice not to and not to have to like live out of a suitcase and to be with family. But after that period of time, like I got really antsy and I was like, I kind of want to travel. I want to speak. Like I want to engage with other people at conferences or social events. And then it started back up here recently. And then in the last few months or so, I've been back to traveling again like crazy. And I'm like in this position where I was like, well, I was begging for this. I was hoping that it would come and happen. And now I'm kind of like, oh man, I kind of wish like things would get dialed down. I don't want like the pandemic to spike back up. But what I do want is just like to not have to travel again. Are you? Is that your experience at all yet? Or have you not had to travel like nearly as, as often? Oh, I think it was wonderful having yeah. the reset. And I suppose the other thing is now it's kind of spoiled me. <laughs> yes. In what and, way? And I don't want to go back to In doing what it. Well, it's, I, I start, you start to realize, you know, it forced us all to have a reset that we start to see what the priorities are. And it, w- it was almost like, as one person says, if you, if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, when, when you're in the corporate world and when you're trying to get your information out there and everything else, you can get so much consumed in what you are doing. And, like, it's all great. We are fortunate that we have a job that we love. And that makes a huge difference. And we're also fortunate that we're in control of our own destiny. But coming with that then has own responsibilities. And when you have something like a reset, you don't feel guilty about taking time out to stay at home because everyone Yeah, it's a forced it. function. And we had yeah, to do it. Yeah, I know. It's true. Uh, yeah, there's something nice about it. Something it, nice. It really is. And, and like the idea of having my hand forced, it's like, well, you can't say, you have no say about it. Like you can't do anything about it. Like it did help me to just take a moment to pause and say, what's actually important in life. And the thing that was great too is like, so when the pandemic started uh, in the beginning, obviously of 2020, um, in April of 2020 was when my second um, child was born, Micah. And you know what? I look back and I think, man, I am so incredibly grateful that 
like even though like the the state of the world like was in really kind of shock and like this was something that really most of us if not all of us had never experienced anything like it before like i got time during those you know that first six months to a year really to just spend time with like my newborn and with my oldest son and with my wife like it was just something too that like in looking back like and you know hindsight's 2020 i'm like my goodness like i would not write it any other way because i got to engage in the things that bring me a sense of fulfillment and meaning and purpose and value because my value isn't like traveling and or making money or like doing podcasts like i love those things i enjoy like you said engaging in things that bring me a sense of joy but the thing that brings me true fulfillment is like my relationships and my family and in over the course of the past two years now um i really have not felt um ever as close to my family as i have now and so again like we we have to count our blessings and look at the silver linings of some of the chaos uh but yeah now that we're kind of back into the swing of kind of like you know the semi-old world that we lived in like i can still look back and try to keep that in mind and that's going to be a challenge sometimes you know when i'm in the hustle and bustle to kind of bring that in but i think a new part of my gratitude practice is just doing a little bit more deep reflection on the past few years doing a little bit more introspection of kind of how my priorities um have changed but also how they've strengthened in certain ways and for me it's uh it's just a great time. So yeah, I wanted to, to, to I didn't know we were going to go this route, but I think it's just kind of like a good moment for, you know, our listeners to really kind of do that self check-in, um, have that level of introspection. I mean, we're all about self-awareness and self-regulation on this podcast. And so I think it would uh, behoove us uh, just to kind of take some time and reflect. Yeah, totally. I think so. I sure think the younger generations have it more than my generation. You know, I think it was behold of our generation to work 10 and 12 hours a day. And that's what we were talking about just before we started. And I remember when I was at a dinner party in L.A., it's going back about two years ago, it was about 30 of us on the table. And of course, after a few beers, you know, the old fogies like me are giving out about the young fogies not prepared to do any work. <laughs> and then one young one young fogie at the end of the table, he says, yeah, he says, he says, we've learned from our parents not to overwork. We, we've learned priorities in life. And then when you tie that back in, we're talking about heart rate variability. And we have to ask the question, that constant drive and push from society and pressure, that it is more likely to put us into sympathetic activation and keep us stuck in that sympathetic drive. And then this, if you look then at, if we were to look at American society as a whole, it's seen as the most advanced society on earth. But then if we were to break it down and ask, with advancement, does it bring happiness? And by breaking it down into the number of people with insomnia, the number of people on prescribed medications and helping to bring a calmness and quietness of the mind. So advancement per se is not necessarily advancement. It could actually be to the detriment of society. And HRV, of course, and, and breathing. And there is a void here because you know, I'm sure in, in the States, just as where any country and any where everybody is listening, and we see it in Ireland, there is very much a drive away from traditions such as religion. And religion served a purpose there and did serve a purpose in terms of, number one is that you had that, that social community. Number two is you had that reliance on, on other people. Number three, you had a belief that there was a higher power there to look after you in terms of a crutch. And number four... The act of saying prayers changed breathing patterns and stimulated the vagus nerve. And it's kind of when we look at Bernardi's paper, 
or is it Bordoni? I think it's Bernardi looking at the effect of the rosary prayer and yoga mantras, slowing down the breaths to six breaths per minute. So what's going to fill that void? And is it going to be people are realizing that, yes, they are becoming more self-aware and it's tremendous to see mindfulness really take a hold. And breathing now is the next mindfulness. Breathing now is hot. Mindfulness was hot 10 years ago. And of course, one ties in with the other and sleep comes in with that as well. So I actually like the direction we're going, Jay. I think society, I think I think maybe the younger generation are kind of getting this. I think they, they've got it. You know yeah, that? it's great points. A lot of times uh, the younger generation can get crapped on for so many things, which some things they probably should get crapped on. I mean, spending six plus hours a day on Instagram or social media is probably not the best value of, of your time. And that in and of itself can be sympathetically arousing and cause a decrease in HRV, cause in dysfunctional breathing. So like there are aspects, but you know, nobody's perfect, right? We evolve in some ways and maybe de-evolve in other ways. But what I, to your point, I think it's right. Like we're kind of, we're able to kind of take a step back and say, okay, like, can we learn from what has caused detriment to other people? And then what have also caused detriment to us? And one thing for me is that it's funny because, you know, I'm in my mid thirties and, but I'm still technically considered a a millennial. I think it's kind of a wide range. Um, I think I'm like on the very edge of what's considered a millennial. And I know a lot of times millennials and then whatever the next generation after mine is called, I I don't know, they can, you know, give them kind of crazy names all the time. And I Mm -hmm. I can't keep up with any of them. But like a lot of people look at me like, you know, the uh, millennials and whatever the you know, one after me, like they're bad with finances. Like they're always on social media. They're not connecting. And some of those aspects may be true, but we're also learning too, that these individuals have a lot of drive and they work smarter, not harder. You know, they're not like, oh, well, I have to pay my dues. Like my dad worked, you know, every single day, never took a day off for, you know, 40 years. And, you know, he worked 12 to 15 hours a day. And uh, we have to say like, it, it, did that bring that person the sense of fulfillment and joy or did it cause mass dysfunction and now that he's kind of at the end able to retire is he looking back and saying that was worth it like it was worth kind of like paying my dues and kind of like putting in all that time and effort did it bring me that sense of fulfillment and joy and my guess my hypothesis is that probably not he's probably like you know what in the end the the things that I value most is maybe working smarter not harder so that I can be there actively engaged in relationships with my family with my friends, you know, with my religious group or gathering, like all of those things like, you know, go, go kind of unfortunately by the wayside when we pay our dues. And so I think it's a really valuable thing, you know, just to kind of keep in mind that like if we want to truly take a holistic approach and an integrative approach to our health and we're interested in things like, you know, working on HRV biofeedback, working on mindfulness, working on breath work is that those are really valuable and key components, but it's also something a little bit more meta than that. It's taking a step back from that and saying, okay, I can integrate those practical skill sets. Like that's a great thing, but also too, like what's the main purpose behind this? What's the main reason? Like why is even health important? Because I ask that question all the time and that's a very like psychologist, you know, question to ask is like, well, why would health even be important for you? Like, like what's the purpose of having good health? What's the purpose of like living? And like, that's when we get into a little bit more of a deeper discussion where it's like, yeah, we can utilize the valuable tools of breath work, of mindfulness, of HRV training or biofeedback. But like, what's the goal? Like, what's the end goal? 
so that you can say that you're healthy? No, nobody really cares that much about that. They want to say, I feel fulfilled and passionate and thriving and engaged. And if people can come away with that, then their life is just, it's going to be an easier life for anybody. And, I'm, and again, like in this is cliche, just a much more fulfilled and passionate life too. So yeah, great thoughts, Patrick. Totally. We're all striving for one thing. It's happiness. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's one thing that we, again, like I, I hate like using cliches, but it's real. It's true. Like it's not necessarily a cliche. Like we all want to be happy. I've never come across to somebody, you know, in the 12 years of clinical practice and research practice that I've engaged now as a clinical psychologist, I've never cr- come across somebody who said like, my goal in life is to be miserable, is to be unfulfilled, it's to be disengaged and socially isolated. Never met one. Now there's probably going to be some like, you know, person that like emails me after this or like gets on Instagram, like I'm that person. Like, I don't want to feel fulfilled. Like, I mean, then I'm just going to say, yeah, you're a liar <laughs> or you're, I don't know, you're a sociopath. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding, Delusions. but no, it's, it's, it's true. We all really are striving to be happy. And, and, and you can see that in like the way we live life and engage in behavior. Like sometimes we just don't really have the education or the knowledge of like how, what we're engaging in could uh, add to fulfillment and happiness in our life and how maybe we think it will, but it won't. Um, and, you know, and that's where people get caught up in things like addiction. When people get caught up in things, uh, you know, like <laughs> overindulgent, uh, indulging in social media, I keep making fun of all the social media, like people right now. It's because for me, I also see like, it's a great way to connect, but it's also a really great way to pull away from people. But like, that's, that's what happens. And our behavior, what we engage in, um, it, 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 it's one thing that we can control. I mean, we can always engage in something different, but sometimes we just don't have the great education to kind of understand like whether or not like what we are doing or the behavior you're engaging in, like how it directly like influences true happiness or gives us that kind of false sense of gratification and happiness that really is only temporary, gives a great dopamine pleasure reward center spike. And the next thing we know, we're back at it for more. But on the other side, on the back end of things, it's just causing a, a, a just path of damage, miles and miles of damage. So strive for happiness. We just have to do it in a way that is truly fulfilling to us so that when, you know, it sounds morbid, when we're on our deathbed, like we look back and we say, oh, I don't have a regret in that. I'm so glad I did that. Because for me, I, I don't know about you, Patrick, when I look back on my deathbed, and we're taking this a little bit deep and slightly morbid, but I'm okay with that. When I look back and I'm on my deathbed, whenever that is, you know, when I'm 140, <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to look back and say, man, I am so glad that I engaged like with my family instead of like doing, you know, 80 hour work weeks every single week or 100 hour work weeks. I truly yes. hope that. Yeah. 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 Totally. And I think similar, not studies, but observations have been made with people close to that. And they have been asked those questions and they, what were the priorities in life? And the priority was not work. The pri- priority was relationships, maintaining relationships and getting the fundamentals right. And I think we get it because when you do spend time with family, there's a sense of comfort in that and there's a sense of belonging in it. Whereas when it's go, 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 it's almost that your attention is consumed by work Um and there's something amiss there. You know, it would be very interesting in terms of like all of the science that's abounding now at heart rate variability and gadgets is to go into the Amazon and to find a tribal group which has been untouched, if such a group exists, untouched by modernization and measure their data. Here we go. Next Hanu Health and Research Study. Here we go. 
<laughs> so yeah, that's the yeah, next quest. Indeed, because you predict uh you predict that because of um maybe I won't say the lack of evolution, um, but I would say maybe the lack of distraction. Um, would you predict that these individuals would have more resilient nervous systems or would you predict uh, something different? Oh, I would, without a doubt, say that they are more yeah. resilient. I would say so too. Um, they're close to nature. They're naturally earthing. They're eating natural foods. They're breathing unpolluted air. They're in an environment whereby you can guarantee that they are not working eight hours a day. They are working whatever they need to survive, to get food, etc. And there's a sense of belonging. And, you know, really, that's what any person is looking yeah. for. I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, it's one of those things that, like, I mean, these are people who are living truly like our ancestors, where it's like, are they experiencing, you know, the stressor of potentially like having to, you know, let's say, look for food and maybe not find it. And so they're going some time without food. Absolutely. Is that a stressor? Yes, but it's an acute transient stressor. Um, you know, are, is there the potential of, you know, so we talked about famine, is there a potential of, you know, like getting bit by a snake in the Amazon and dying or like being attacked by a mountain lion or, or whatever, wherever the person's at, whatever the threat they have, there is. But again, that's what our ancestors lived with. There are these transient acute stressors. They're not these long-term chronic stressors that really like over time have such a detrimental yeah. compounding effect. And I think it's a huge distinction for us to make. So I would absolutely agree with you like them these individuals feeling a sense of belonging being a part of their tribe is something that i actually try to take the mentality of my own family and then with kind of my social group as well and uh you know ben greenfield talks about this a lot and we talk about this a lot on his podcast of like there is probably no greater feeling than when you truly feel like a part of a tribe like when you truly feel like a sense of belonging like these are my people not to the exclusion or inclusion of who's in it or who's not in it but just feeling that sense of of like I am actually like a part of something that brings such fulfillment. And so if people can get mm -hmm. back to that, because I feel like we have lost some connection, but we're learning about how great that is for our overall sense of mental health and physical health, like that will help to solve so many health problems in, in today's day and age. It's just mm -hmm. like, even mm -hmm. if we threw away, I mean, and, and again, like I'm not telling people to do this, but if we threw away, like, you know, all the sense of like heart rate variability training, even breath work, even like anything and we just said i want to get back just to kind of one core value which is being a part of a social tribe i think that's like the best place to start yeah. i don't know maybe you disagree with that yeah no no i totally agree with it and just as you were talking there i was only thinking like i have an 11 year old kid and we play an irish game it's called hurling h-u-r-l-i-n not, not curling like the canadians do and <laughs> no, it's a, it's, a, it's a game that's played by sticks. It's it's an ancient game. It's it was played over about two thousand years ago, and she's on a pitch, and it's it's a grass. It's the fastest field sport, um, I think, on earth. But she's got a sense of community. She's a young kid with fourteen other kids, and there's that teamwork. There's their you know they'll get hit by the ball, so they'll get you know unfortunately or fortunately not too injured, but. There's disappointments, there's triumphs, there's good days, there's bad days, there's teamwork, there's that solidarity, there's support there. And it's almost as if the sports and religion and organizations and different things of today is replicating the social grouping and gatherings of the past. And as I said earlier on, maybe sports is one of the key features 
for for growing kids and also for the parents because I feel there's a sense of solidarity then when you're bringing your kid to the sport and you're watching them evolve. Um, you know, the other thing about this is that children will get bullied in school generally and very often. But if a young kid is able to excel in a particular field, they always will have that inner strength. That they have this inner strength that regardless of ha- what's happening on the outside, they know themselves that they know that they have been capable, that they have been able to achieve, that they have done well in a certain area. And that inner strength can provide a resolve regardless of what's happening on the outside. But if there's a kid who's solely entrapped with information technology, and that's their world, do they have the inner strength to be able to cope with the trials and tribulations of everyday life? And it's all part of growing up. We all got bullied growing up. That's inevitable. You know, and there's always these tough nuts of kids and I always like when I think back of my own life and anybody, you know, you're I'm sure look at the people who did the bullying to you and 30 years and 40 years on, look at them and watch that space. And this is a, this is a marathon. So uh, if you're a young kid or a teenager that feels you're at the, you're at the wrong end, you know, in terms of getting bullied, don't worry about it. This too will yeah, pass. No, indeed. Great words of wisdom. You know, uh, one of the most you know famous psychologists in the world, his name's Alfred Adler. He came up with this idea that uh, especially as kids um, and even as adults, we're all striving to avoid a sense of inferiority uh, because nobody wants to feel inferior. And so when we're bullied, especially as kids, like we feel inferior, we feel like we can't protect ourselves. And a lot of times then we go and engage in things that are almost like outlets. There is escapes. And one of the big ways that people are doing this right now, we've mentioned it a couple of times, is engaged in like information technology and technology uh, in regards to social media. And we lose our sense of independent thinking. We lose our sense of autonomy. And that's a really dangerous place to be. So the challenge right now is how can we um, help individuals, especially young kids, to develop that sense of inner strength, that sense of autonomy and independence, and not just us, especially me, I'm thinking as a parent, that kind of almost like bullying them around, telling them what to do and what not to do, uh, where they don't have kind of their ability to like think for themselves and think like, is this something that is, you know, makes, is this decision something that actually makes sense? Does it benefit me and benefit somebody else and not hurt somebody else? And so, uh, you know, again, I think it's just kind of worth um, us as adults kind of looking in that, into that too. Like where, where are our escapes that we're, in, you know, kind of engaging in? Where are we kind of like leaving other areas of life and we're kind of like relinquishing our sense of self-thinking and autonomy and independence uh, because we're trying to fill a void because we feel you know inferior. So yeah, again, I could derail us on this for an hour. People came to this and they're like, I thought you guys were like the HRV breathing, like Q&A podcasts, like people, you guys are over here talking about meaning and purpose and life. And I'm like, yeah, this is the stuff that matters. <laughs> that true, everything matters. I'm not saying that what we don't talk about, you know, the other things that we talk about that they don't matter, but this stuff really matters. So yeah, Patrick, great, great thoughts of uh, work. Words, uh, the great words of wisdom and thoughts here. Uh, I think it, uh, you know, I was trying to see if we could have like a really good transition from this to uh, you know, our upcoming discussion. HRV. To HRV, CO2, <laughs> questions. Yeah, 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 we'll see. Um, so what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of like say, all right, table that for the next time that we meet. We'll continue the conversation and get more into the uh, you know discussions for today. So we're like uh, 22 minutes in. And if anybody is joining us for the very first time, um, again, you got Dr. Jay Wiles here, Patrick McEwen, Oxygen Advantage. 
Uh, we meet every single month for these Q&As where we actually answer listener questions. You guys submit it to us uh, either through email or on Instagram or other social media outlets. And if we choose kind of your question, uh, we just go ahead and talk about them and answer them kind of the best that we can. So before we do that, Patrick and I um, usually banter like we did, you know, for 23 minutes. Uh, but we're also going to kind of just open up a subject matter uh, before we get to the Q&A that a lot of people have asked about. And I think that I wanted to talk with you about it, Patrick, because this is an area of expertise for you. Um, but also, too, the one thing that I love is that you're able to kind of boil down the science and physiology of what I'm about to mention here into just really easy, understandable bites. Um, and that's the the role of CO2. Like so many people still like uh, either message me or they'll email me and they're like, I don't understand. Like I still kind of have this notion that CO2 is just kind of like this off gassing, this waste gas, like kind of really only there as something that can like kind of complete the circle of life because most people understand that plants thrive off of CO2. We produce it and plants produce oxygen and we thrive off oxygen. Uh, but they don't really understand like how can CO2 actually have like an operational role in health. And so what I figured would be a really good idea is for you and I just to unpack and maybe even more so you because I know this is down you know, your lane. Like what is the role of CO2? Like why do we even talk about CO2 being so important? So I think maybe it would be best, Patrick, if we just kind of unpacked it and talk about what CO2 actually is. And then like when it comes to breath work, when it comes to overall health, like why is it even of concern? Why are we not just like talking about oxygen? So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I think it's, uh, I would agree with you. Most people are pretty much dumbfounded when they hear that carbon dioxide is, is it's an, it's, could you regard it as a nutrient absolutely essential to life? And when we break down just the basic physiology of it, and this is just normal physiology, what does carbon dioxide do? How do we generate carbon dioxide? Do we breathe in carbon dioxide? What's driving our breathing? So carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, even though people talk about you know greenhouse gas, etc., it's 0.04% of atmospheric pressure. And if we think of the atmosphere at sea level, it's 760 millimeters of mercury. And of that, oxygen is 21%. So oxygen is 21% of the atmosphere, and at sea level, the atmospheric pressure is 760 millimeters, and carbon dioxide is 0.04% mm -hmm. of that. The human lungs, and the theory is that the human lungs evolved in a period of high carbon dioxide, that plant life was so abundant, and the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere millions of years ago was in the tens of percent, but now it's fundamentally different and it's down to 0.01 percent mm. do you think that has during had the evolution some pretty, human, like negative ramifications for us as humans or do you think we just have evolved to, to to kind of deal with those conditions i think we've adapted you know like we've done pretty well we've got this yeah, far exactly yeah, right. so and it's like in terms of carbon dioxide then as well like how do we generate it we generate it from our metabolism so we don't breathe we don't breathe mm -hmm. it in we produce it in the body itself now, this is where our ancestors would have fared better because our ancestors would have been nasal breeders and they would have been doing a lot of physical exercise all day long because they were doing manual toil. They weren't talking all day the way we are. They weren't sitting down behind desks. They weren't under chronic stress. They naturally would have had a very good tolerance towards carbon dioxide because if you do physical exercise with your mouth closed, you feel an increased sensation of mm -hmm. air hunger. And the reason being is because your nose imposes a resistance to your breathing that's 2.5 times that of the mouth during wakefulness. Mm -hmm. And because your nose is a smaller entry and exit, 
Air cannot leave the body so quickly through the nose as through the mouth. So carbon dioxide increases in the blood. You feel air hunger. And just to point out too, but and again, you, I'll, I'll link all of uh, uh, the stuff that we talk about in today's show notes over at hanuhealth.com slash podcast. But we did answer a question too on this last, I think it was a last Q&A where we talked about kind of the role of nasal breathing only, especially like should we inhale through the nose and exhale through the nose? And one of the points that you made there is again, like it's really great, especially if we're working on CO2 pooling and increasing CO2 tolerance to breathe from the nasal, uh, breathe in through the nasal pathway and out through the nasal pathway so that you can enhance that level of uh, tolerance to CO2. So I just wanted to mention that just in case people want to take a more of a deep dive into kind of like, why should we only breathe breathe nasally? Last podcast. Go for it, Patrick. And then again, if we have a good, so people might be asking like, why should we have an improved or a good tolerance towards carbon dioxide? It's because carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus Mm -hmm. to breathe. So you can imagine that you've got carbon dioxide coming from the tissue into the blood and as carbon dioxide is, is coming into the blood, that blood then is brought back to the heart and back to the lungs where excess CO2 is exhaled. And that's the key that people probably think, you know, that because we breathe out excess CO2, that carbon dioxide then is the waste gas. But then we have to ask, well, what's left behind? What's left in the lungs and how much carbon dioxide should be in the body? So normal carbon dioxide in, in the blood and in the lungs and under normal circumstances, it's the pressure of carbon dioxide in the lungs that determines the pressure of carbon dioxide mm-hmm. in the blood. So we said that 0.04% is the pressure of, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The pressure of carbon dioxide in the lungs and blood should be 5%. So there's a huge difference between 0.04% versus mm-hmm. 5%. And we're talking about 5% of atmospheric pressure. So we produce carbon dioxide internally, but if we have a habit of breathing too hard and too fast, and it's not just about having a fast respiratory rate, it's the volume of air we breathe. Mm. It's the respiratory rate multiplied by the depth of breathing to give us minute ventilation. And it's the volume of air we breathe that determines carbon dioxide in the lungs and blood. And if we have a habit of breathing a little bit too much air, that in turn will get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs Carbon dioxide levels are lower. And what does carbon dioxide do? What are some of the signs, the everyday signs that we are lower in carbon dioxide? And it is a little bit, there's some anomalies here as well. This is not just so clear cut either. But I'll go through it and I'll kind of explain the anomalies. When, for example, we breathe too much, we get rid of too much carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide relaxes smooth muscle throughout the body. And smooth muscle is embedded in the blood vessels and airways and many of the organs as well. So if you breathe hard, your blood vessels constrict. So it's very common for people who breathe hard to have cold hands and cold feet. And also associate with that, the harder you breathe, the less blood flow reaches the Mm -hmm. brain. So back in 1983, there was a researcher called McGarrian. And his conclusion was that every one millimeter drop of CO2 reduces blood flow to the brain by 2%. So how easy is it to get rid of carbon dioxide from the body? It's very easy. If I asked you to take full big breaths for one minute, that's all it takes. One minute of full big, big breaths, you can reduce carbon dioxide in the blood by half. So you could reduce it from normal of 40 millimeters of mercury down to 20. One minute of hard hyperventilation can reduce blood flow to the brain by up to 40%. Mm. Now, what happens then when the brain isn't getting sufficient blood flow and oxygen delivery? Brain cells become excitable. So it increases agitation of the mind. And since back in, since 1924, carbon dioxide was seen as a tranquilizer. 
Now, of course, it's not quite a tranquilizer. It was also labeled as a narcotic gas, but it certainly has a relaxant effect on the human body and mind. Is this why Patrick, so is this brain, why Patrick when some people engage in, let's say, different breathwork strategies, especially ones that are uh, enhancing sympathetic arousal, like uh, expelling a lot of air in a really quick period of time? Like I hear a lot of reports of people saying like they start to feel like agitated. They start to feel a little bit anxious. First, and But then some people will say, like, I start feeling like really relaxed. And a lot of times they'll follow it up with like breath holds, like they'll, you know, and get, expel a lot of air and then they breath hold. Like, is, do you you happen to know why or have any idea why there are some people that like will feel i think you kind of explained it will feel agitated when they do it but then some people are just like oh no man it feels like really relaxing because from a physiological standpoint it doesn't seem to make sense why it would like help to engage a relaxation response unless something is going on differently maybe the pooling of co2 after let's say like a breath hold which I'll, i can talk about here in a second can increase parameters of hrv and vagal tone like uh, it's just kind of a little bit confusing to a lot of people so i didn't know if you wanted to shed any light and then we'll kind of jump back uh, to where you were i think the effect is genetic mm -hmm. you know if i ask 10 people to hyperventilate people are going to be affected differently two days ago we had an instructor's meeting and one of the instructors in the, is an italian psychologist mm -hmm. and he's working with a client at the moment the client did hyperventilation for one full hour when he was 20 years of age so hyperventilation for one full hour has some breathwork practices mm -hmm. And he developed spasms in the face and throat and tongue, tick, facial um, tics. They have been ongoing for five years. Oh, wow. And not everybody will develop that. And here's the, here's the strange like thing. You cannot always predict. Doing, or? That was okay. exactly yeah, what he was geez. doing. And that's what caused it. I wasn't going to name it. but I, I'll do it. <laughs> so he then came, he came, he, he came across Breed Light then. And he's making some progress with that. So... I suppose we have to bear in mind that we're all different. And even when we are working with people with different complaints and panic disorder and anxiety, you know, it could it be that people to, with a tendency towards panic and anxiety, that when they hyperventilate, they have a significantly stronger vasoconstriction effect. In other words, reduced blood flow going to the brain than others. Mm -hmm. And they have also a different tolerance to carbon dioxide and, for example, I put people into panic attacks by having them breathe less air. And I, my intention was to have them breathe less air to improve blood flow to the brain, have them do some breath tolls to increase blood flow to the brain, to have a calming effect. So, Jay, one lesson that I've taken out of all of this working with people is we go easy and yeah. we gently develop people's tolerance to it because sometimes we don't know how a person is going to react. Like I remember having a footballer in, this guy was about six foot two, big guy, 20 years of age. And I had him with a small group workshop of about five or six people going through the exercises and he started crying in the mm. class. Now, not too many 20 year olds. It must take a bit to push him because this guy is not a walkover. Sure. This guy is well able to, to tolerate, you know, he's tough. But yet what I did was the exercises obviously had a stronger effect on him because of his background of panic mm. disorder. So, you know, now we start off so easy because you never know where you are at in terms of yeah. breath work. And if you start off very gentle, you can gently increase the, the, the tolerance or not gently increase the dose of the air hunger and the duration of the air hunger to find where is that person is yeah. at. And ultimately, we want to challenge a little bit, but we don't want to push people over. 
Now, I don't think people realize, truly realize the power of the brat. And it took me a long time, you know, and I've like, as I said, I've made plenty of mistakes. But when it comes back to carbon dioxide and people talk about carbon dioxide, breathe in as much oxygen as possible and get rid of as much carbon dioxide as possible. It's not taking into consideration the role of carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. as a vasodilator, Mm -hmm. increasing blood flow and improving blood circulation throughout the body. It's not taking into consideration that when you breathe in oxygen into the lungs, oxygen is passing from the lungs into the blood and 98.5% of oxygen is carried in the blood bound by hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. And hemoglobin is a protein in the red blood cell. How does hemoglobin release oxygen to the tissues and organs? And one factor that causes that release is an increase of carbon dioxide and a resultant drop in blood Mm -hmm. pH. So if we are breathing too hard and we are getting rid of too much carbon dioxide, there is a curve called the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And you will find this if you put it into Google. And if you breathe too hard and you're losing too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs, which you can do in about 30 to 60 minutes of hyperventilating, the curve shifts to the left and hemoglobin holds on to oxygen more Mm. readily. So hard breathing is not only causing blood vessels to constrict, but is also causing less oxygen to be delivered throughout Mm -hmm. the body. Now, as a result, when we breathe hard, the fraction of expired oxygen is greater. So literally, when we breathe hard, we're taking in a lot of oxygen into the lungs, into the blood. That oxygen does a round trip, and then we exhale that oxygen back out again. So there's so much oxygen in the human body that even during fairly intense physical exercise, we still have about 25%. You know, our oxygen, you know, there's there's a huge reservoir, if I was to use that word, that it's very unlikely that, you know, if you go for a sprint with your mouth closed, your blood oxygen saturation will drop down to maybe about 91%. Mm-hmm. You're barely hypoxic. Yep. If you do a sprint with the mouth open, your blood oxygen saturation drops down to about 94%. Mm-hmm. You're not even in hypoxia. In other words, you can really push the body hard and you will hardly affect oxygen in the mm-hmm. blood. But yet when people feel that strong air hunger, what is causing that? Well, that's going to be caused because of an increase in metabolic activity, which is generating carbon dioxide, dropping blood pH, and the brain is reacting to the change in blood pH by sending an increased stimulus to breathe. Now, here's the crux of it. Some people are overly overly sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. And these can be people with, you know, increased breathlessness during physical exercise, um, sleep apnea, 30% of the sleep apnea population have what's called high loop gain. And that can be assessed by using breath hold time during wakefulness. And if they have a low breath hold time during wakefulness, it can provide an indicator of your sensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup. And ultimately, it's your breathing during wakefulness that will determine your breathing during mm-hmm. sleep. And it's your breathing even during rest that determines your breathing during physical exercise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're all different. Right. And um, I had cold hands and feet for, for many, many years as a result of hyperventilation. I'd, I had brain fog, undiagnosed sleep apnea, difficulty concentrating, difficulty focusing. But the person next to me may have had just as dysfunctional breathing as myself, but mightn't have had those symptoms. Right. 
that's the difference when it comes to the breath. Yeah. No, it's that's great information. Thanks for taking that deep dive into CO2 and really illustrating just kind of the the, the diversity of effect of, of CO2. You know, one of the things that, you know, I, I love that you mentioned is that it operates as a vasodilator. I mean, the other thing too, which you mentioned, uh, which was explaining the Borer effect so eloquently, is that CO2, and again, I don't know if I've heard you mention it this way, Patrick, or if this is just kind of the way I've been always kind of conceptualized it the first time I heard it. Uh, CO2 almost seems to act like a a key, just kind of similar to like insulin does. So like insulin is a key that drives sugar into cells from the blood in order to be utilized. CO2 sounds like it's a key. It locks in and then now you're able to deliver and utilize oxygen way more effectively. It is the way to deliver and utilize oxygen. Is that a, a good analogy or comparison or are there some nuances that I'm missing there? No, it's pretty spot on. If, if we look at a quotation by John West, he's, um, He's a respiratory physiologist. He's very well regarded in terms of respiration. And a lot of doctors will read his mm -hmm. book um, to, to get an insight into respiratory health. And his quotation is that an exercising muscle is hot and hypercapnic. And an exercising muscle, by becoming hot and hypercapnic, will receive more oxygen. Mm. So in very simple terms, what this means is if you go for a jog, the muscles that you're going to work the hardest are the mm -hmm. leg muscles. But how do those leg muscles get more oxygen? Because you need to get oxygen to the work to the muscles that are working exactly. the hardest. So how how do those working muscles get that oxygen? Well, the hotter the muscle becomes, that causes a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And also an exercising muscle is generating and producing more carbon dioxide, which is causing a right shift. Mm. So as opposed for people to remember it that, yeah, oxygen isn't delivered equally throughout yep. the body. And the muscles that need it the most get the most oxygen. But for those muscles to get the more oxygen, they become hotter and hypercapnic. And hypercapnic means producing more carbon dioxide. Yes. But here's another question. If you have an athlete with disproportionate breathlessness during physical exercise, so say we have an athlete or we have a, a recreational normal individual sleeping with the mouth open, breathing hard and fast all night long, We'd say maybe with a tendency towards anxiety or panic disorder or asthma, because these groups are more prone to dysfunctional mm -hmm. breathing. That person, their breathing during rest is faster and harder. And that individual then does physical exercise. And during physical exercise, they have disproportionate breathing. So for the given intensity of physical exercise, their breathing is too hard and too fast, which is causing too much carbon dioxide to be removed from the body. What's that doing then in terms of aerobic capacity yeah. and getting more oxygen yeah, to the working muscles? And in an extreme example, think of people with chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, they go for a walk for maybe 20 minutes and they have such lactic acid as a result of it that they, ha they have to go back to bed for about mm -hmm. two hours. That's just one example. And can we change that? Yes, we can. Yeah. No, it's it's really intriguing. You know, it's one of the things, like, I don't think we have to make too much of a pitch for, you know, like exercise, but one of the things that we might need to make a pitch for uh, that you've mentioned here just now is that if we, uh, th there's a translative effect. So the way that we're breathing at a normal resting condition tends to translate into how we breathe um, dysfunctionally or functionally when we're engaging in exercise. So if we can actually train ourselves through breathwork techniques, um, through, you know, the things that you 
and I speak about and preach about a lot on this podcast, then we can then see a translative effect over to exercise, that kind of good carryover effect. And I do them kind of vice versa. Like for me, I'm, I'm trying to be as cognizant and as aware as I can of my breathing and resting conditions. And then also too, I do it when in, in, in a physical exercise capacity as, as well. Like breathing during exercise is a little bit more difficult, especially if you're doing nasal only than breathing at rest. However, it becomes a hell of a lot easier if you're practicing it at rest and then seeing that translating or translative effect when you're exercising. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really valuable point. So kind of as, as we wrap this up, uh, Patrick, any other thoughts kind of on CO2? Hopefully we've kind of like helped to uh, remove any stigma or you know demonization that people have had on CO2. I mean, a lot of our listeners are going to already know that it's not kind of like this, you know, evil thing that's, that's there, but uh, it's just really important to kind of realize that if we want to be able to utilize oxygen more effectively and the muscles that need it at that time, then we need to be able to kind of utilize and become more tolerant to CO2 first, because without CO2, oxygen is not going to operate. I mean, it's not going to operate at all, but it's not going to operate nearly as efficiently if we are, have you know a dysfunction in our tolerance level to CO2. Anything else you would add? I think the best way is to yep. practice it. Yep. You know, we can talk all the theory in the world. Um, one of one of the things that really made, like, it, there's bound to be people listening here that have cold hands and cold feet. And, you know, maybe they just accept it as being, well, that's the yeah. way they are. But the next time that they have five minutes to spare, sit down and bring your attention out of your mind onto mm-hmm. your breathing. And really slow down the speed of the breath in. Almost that your breath in is imperceptible. So you're taking such a soft, gentle breath into the nose, and then you're having a really, really relaxed and a slow and a prolonged exhalation. And the objective is to breathe less Mm -hmm. air. And by breathing less air, carbon dioxide increases in the blood. And you know that carbon dioxide is increasing when you feel air hunger, because the primary stimulus to breathe is carbon dioxide. And the body is very sensitive to an accumulation of carbon dioxide. So practice breathing less air for a period of three minutes. And see, can you influence the blood circulation in your mm-hmm. fingers? Can you bring a feeling of increased temperature into the hands? And on that, if you're wondering then what's going on, I'm sure you realize by now that's due to an increase of carbon dioxide. And that's what carbon dioxide does. And it's not that we want to expose the body to dangerously high carbon dioxide mm-hmm. levels. No, no, not at all. We were talking the first 20 minutes, yeah, we went off on a complete tangent about modern living versus our ancestors, this, that, and the other. And think about our modern living. You know, think about the chronic stress. Think about the talking all day. How many of you talk for a living? And you're absolutely exhausted at the end of the day talking. You know, when you talk or when I talk, of course, our breathing is going to get faster Mm. and harder. But it's not accompanied by an increase in metabolic Mm -hmm. activity. It's normal to breathe harder and faster when you are exercising your yeah. muscles. But if you're talking all day, your breathing is going to be slightly harder and you're breathing more air. And at the end of the, the day, you're exhausted. And could that be due to reduced blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain causing fatigue? Yeah. So breathe less for a short period of time and see, can you influence your blood circulation? And bear in mind, there are 70,000 miles of blood vessels throughout the human body. You can influence your blood circulation, but not just that. There are so many organs in the human body that have smooth muscle embedded in those, mus- in those organs. And maybe this is why that when we get into a stressful situation, 
what's it doing to the body? Well, when we get stressed and we have a difficult situation, and if we respond by hyperventilating, we are breathing too much air. And too much air getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood. Blood vessels constrict. Mm -hmm. There's reduced blood flow going to the brain. Organs are constricting. Airways are constricting. And this can be part of the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. So it's going back to the next time we get into a difficult situation, don't respond by hyperventilating. Understand that if you hyperventilate, it's not going to help you in this situation. Indeed. Great words of wisdom. You know, this is my opportunity to provide a shameless plug that if anybody is not following the Hanu Health waitlist and you're not, you know, part of it, please do. And the reason I say that is again because you know this is a podcast and I can plug it if I want. <laughs> but it's also to say that again, our uh, our goal in creating what we're creating in health technology is to help people become more aware. And one of the things that we see, even just preliminary, and some of the stuff that we've built, is that when heart rate variability drops and people check in subject. Actively, one of the things that they'll always, not always, but one of the things that they will typically notice is that their their pattern of breathing has become pretty dysfunctional. It could be that they're breathing from the mouth or they're just having more labored, shallow breathing. They're breathing really fast. They're off gassing a lot of CO2. And because of that, you're going to see kind of this shift in uh, nervous system functioning. You're going to see an, a heightened increase in sympathetic drive, and you're going to see a relinquishing of vagal break. Um, be- why? Because the body is perceiving that in that moment, you must be kind of like about to be attacked by a mountain lion or something's happening to you, you just, you know, drink something toxic, maybe not that extreme, but the body is, it's protecting you. It's all about self-preservation. So what do we do about it? Like if we become more self-aware, well, then we self-regulate it. We send a different signal. We slow our breathing down. We breathe really lightly. You know, I talked about uh, with David Jackson here recently on a podcast, and he was all about kind of, again, this concept of LSD breathing. It's again, we have to remember and go listen to that podcast. We'll, 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 we'll link that in the show note. But the thing is here too, is that we always have the opportunity to send a direct message and a different message at any moment. You just have to first be conscientious of it. You have to be self-aware of it. And that's what Hanu is really trying to help people be, do is to become more self-aware of that. But in the end, kind of what it comes down to though, is once we do become self-aware, we just latch on to the lowest hanging fruit, something that is so simple. It's non-invasive. It's a part of who we are as human beings, which is low, slow, breathing and not off gassing as fast as we can, as much air, as much CO2, because we know as what, as what you've mentioned here, Patrick before, is that that can have some serious detrimental effects and will translate into other areas of life and will make you more anxious. It will make you more stressed because the body's receiving that signal and some, the body's very sophisticated. The brain is very sophisticated, but also too, like it can be a little bit myopic at times when it receives these different messaging signals from the body, like it doesn't again know the difference between, you know, the mountain lion that's around the corner per se compared to like, you know, you getting a scathing email from you, your your employer or you like having a fight with your husband or your wife. Like these are things again just to, to find and, and to be considerate of. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, shift us over to the Q&A now, Patrick, but thanks again for explaining uh, in such great detail kind of the role of CO2 kind of in all areas. And I'm sure yeah. we'll, we'll you know explore more here soon. Were you, were you going to say something? Can I just bring you back a little yeah. bit, Jay? In terms of self-awareness, how would one how would one know if they are self-aware? You know, I think there's there's a lot of lack of awareness out there. Absolutely, um, that people 
are naturally very stuck in their mind. So how could we decide, how would I know if I'm self-aware? Is it because I'm taking my attention out of my Mm -hmm. mind into the body and because I'm holding my attention there that I can pick up quicker when when I'm under stress because I can feel the tension there? Mm -hmm. But if we're caught up in day-to-day living and all of our focus is in our head and we're putting our attention outwards because most of our attention is going outwards. Very seldom do we bring our attention inwards. And I think females have, I think they are more self-aware. I think they are more in tune with their body than men. I think men's analytical capacity, I don't know, maybe I'm totally wrong there. You're definitely right. Yeah. So to become self-aware, what would be a practice for somebody who isn't self-aware? Would it be just to tune in every now and again just to take their attention out of their body and just even to pl- put their attention into their hand and hold their attention there and to feel what's the temperature of the air yeah. around the hand, what bodily yeah. sensations are there, maybe bring attention as far as their elbow. And again, they're taking attention into the body and then over to the, the shoulder, across the chest, into the abdomen. Mm-hmm. And it's a very useful thing to do. You know, we talk about breath aware, but body awareness that if you go for a walk, don't just go for a walk with your head, um, dispersing attention throughout the body that you can pick up on things. Do you think people sometimes naturally do this or is this something that we have to So I think that we do have this naturally built into us, uh, but because of such a high level of compounding stress, um, we, we move away from it and, and we lose that connection. So the scientific term, if anybody is wondering, um, is, is a term called interoception. And interoception is all about being able to identify how our body is manifesting and responding um, to what's going on within our environment. So for instance, interoception would be able to connect with your breathing without you having to conscientiously like say, I'm going to now connect with my breathing. That's a great way to do it initially. But the more and more we condition that response, the more and more we naturally become more in tune with that. Another one would be heart rate. Um, So kind of even being able to feel that sensation of a heart rate increase or decrease. Some people are really good at that. And some people used to be really good at that and maybe aren't so great because things divert our attention. We say, oh, well, I don't have time to deal with my stress because like, I don't really know what to do with it right now. So what do we do? We just kind of take it. We compress it. We bottle it up. Um, Another really big one would be one that you mentioned before, which is muscular tension. And for males, this happens a lot. Tension in the traps, tension in the shoulders, tension in the chest. So interoception would be all about like, how can I use all of these signals? Because these are signals within the body. Our body is, it wants to save us. Like it wants to self-preserve. It does not want us to be eaten by the mountain lion. It does not want us to be attacked by work. Like it wants us to thrive. So it will send these signals. We just have to tune into them and it's going to be different for everybody, right? Patrick, for me, I am so in tune with my heart rate, like very interoceptive to my heart rate because I've done a lot of training in heart rate variability so that I know, like, I don't even have to place my fingers. Like if anybody's watching this on video, I don't have to place my fingers in my carotid artery. Like I just feel it. And that, again, that takes time. I think what I've noticed, which is really interesting in working with kids is kids, um, uh, they have not been tainted by a lot of the stressors and compounding stressors of life. Most of them, not all of them. I mean, people grow up differently. Uh, but one thing that they're really good at is being very interoceptive. Uh, but we, but a lot of the adults that I meet, um, especially middle-aged adults are really bad at interoception. They don't notice when their heart rate's increasing. They don't notice the amount of muscular tension. They don't 
notice uh, them breathing up, you know, thoracically or even clavically, like in their shoulders, like they just don't notice it. So a lot of it is finding ways to number one, be very conscientious of it. And you have to be, uh, you have to use your volition to kind of focus in on that. But then again, the more you do it, just like any principle in psychology, the more you're going to condition a response so that you don't have to think as much conscientiously about it. It just happens. Like you just, uh, your, your attention's just drawn to it. So like if I'm stressed, yes, I love the idea of leveraging technology to look at heart rate variability during the day. But I also too, if I'm stressed, like I will just feel it. Like I'll feel it in my heart. Um, uh, and I know that that might sound like a little bit like esoteric or nebulous, but it's not like I like literally feel my heart rate change. So it's a lot of it's just being kind of, uh, you know, taking the time to condition the response to be self-aware to those small little things that seem micro, but they're actually macro. They're a thing. They are signaling systems. And if we view them as signaling six systems that are there to help prevent injury and to save us, then I think it's a better way of conceptualizing like why it would be important to tune into those things throughout the day is that kind of does that make sense from how i explain that okay. yeah, totally we should be calling it the lost art of self-awareness yeah, i love it it's our new book we'll have to bring james Nestor on there you talk about the lost art of breathing <laughs> and now we can all three write a book on the lost art of self-awareness and it's huge though no it's true all right patrick well i know we uh we, we are deep into this thing and haven't gotten to q a now but uh, so i'll shift this over there so today we'll probably maybe we'll get to one or two questions um again like hopefully like people have found this to be extremely useful and practical um and you know uh, you know I, I think that we're pretty you know fun people to listen to but i don't know if people want to listen to two and a half hours so so, you know, we'll probably try to keep it <laughs> no more than like 90 minutes. Um, so, well, let's go ahead now and uh, shift over to Q&A. Does that sound good with you, Patrick? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So this is the part of the show where we have our listener Q&A and our listener Q&A again comes from our listeners. So you, if you're interested in having Patrick answer one of your questions, it's pretty simple. You just email us podcast at hanuhealth.com. That's podcast at hanuhealth.com. And uh, if we choose your question, we're getting a lot of questions, by the way, Patrick, if we choose your question and it seems like it's one that we either we haven't answered or we need to kind of be a little bit more nuanced with, then we'll, we'll put it on here and we will mention your name and we won't mention your full name and we'll mention your name. So that's one way to do it. It's probably the easiest way. You can all also uh, send us a direct message on Instagram at Hanu Health. And what, yeah, at Hanu Health is our Instagram account or handle. And then we, we will uh, love to kind of hear from you there. So let's go to our first question, uh, which comes from Melissa. Actually, Melissa uh, was a question we were going to get to last time we had the podcast, but we didn't. So I shifted her question up to number one. So Melissa, uh, this is for you. And she asked, what is the best breathwork pattern for increasing HRV? Should I focus on exhales over inhales? So I really like this question again, because it's kind of like in my alley in terms of HRV and HRV biofeedback. But I also like this question because, you know, it's always funny, Patrick. And again, I'm not making funny, Melissa. So please don't take it that way. I love your question if, is when people always ask that word uh, or they preface it with like best like, what is the best practice? Uh, and I would say that for you and I, we're probably going to say like, I don't know. I don't know what the best is for you. Like, I know what the best is for me because I've utilized a lot of different strategies and I've tested it. But best is just one of those words that like, I try to remove that. So I kind of say like, what are, what does the research say about the most advantageous ways of ra raising HRV? And I'm just going to give some of my preliminary thoughts and then I'll punt it over to you for, for what your thoughts are, especially when we talk about kind of like extending exhalations versus inhalations. 
So, you know, one of the things that we actually know from research, um, especially uh, from a, a guy out of Rutgers University, this is a professor emeritus. His name is uh, Dr. Paul Lair. And he actually did a, he's kind of spent his life researching um, kind of different breathwork patterns and the more or less the pacing of breathing uh, for heart rate variability and how it affects heart rate variability. So just kind of really quickly, if anybody's not familiar, there are two predominant influences of heart rate variability. One would be something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is the changes of heart rate across the respiratory cycle. And the more change you have in the heart rate across the respiratory cycle, that's usually indicative of a higher HRV. Uh, The other thing that's a major contributor is something called the baroreflex mechanism. And I've talked about that a few times in the podcast, so I'm not going to go too deep. But basically, this is a homeostatic mechanism for maintaining blood pressure uh, throughout uh, the system, throughout the body. And we know that when people uh, engage their parasympathetic nervous system, predominantly through breathing and changing uh, the mechanics um, and the pacing of breathing, and even to, you could argue, uh, the chemistry of breathing, then that will significantly influence our means of uh, managing a homeostatic blood pressure or that mechanism. So with that, um, what Dr. Paul Lair has done as he's looked at, are there rates of breathing that will typically influence heart rate variability more so than others? And the answer is, is that for most individuals, when we get their breathing rate down to or breath rate down to about six breaths per minute, that this is going to be a pretty good sweet spot for most people. So he found that out. He said, okay, so six breaths per minute seems to really be kind of like more or less a universal way of raising HRV for a bulk majority of people. However, can we get a little bit more granular with that? Like, is there, are there ways of enhancing HRV, um, even in a more specific way for individuals? So can we make this basically bio-individual? And he, uh, found something called what he, what he refers to as resonance breathing or resonant frequency breathing. And what he found, um, through just thousands among thousands of participants is that for most human adults, their resonant rate, and I'll explain that here in just a second, falls between four and a half breaths per minute at the lowest to as high as six and a half breaths per minute. So somewhere in between there, a bulk majority of adult humans uh, will find that they can uh, breathe at that rate and it will have the highest degree of influence on heart rate variability or influence in the uh, autonomic nervous system. The way you do that um, is uh, simple yet not so simple. Um, you have to go kind of through a series of tests at each breath cycle, each half breath from six and a half all the way to four and a half, and look at a wide diverse metric, a wide diversity of metrics within heart rate variability. You can look at Paul Lair's initial study on this. He's refined it throughout the years, which I think is great that he just didn't like stick to his guns. He's like, no, this is the only way to do it. He's refined it and made it more granular and more specific, which is great. But uh, but the best way to do it right now is to go see a biofeedback therapist who knows how to run a resonant frequency evaluation or assessment. Now, if people just hold on and they follow Hanu Health, there might be some other ways uh, coming down the pike where they can actually find this rate for themselves. But what I will say, and this is my long-winded answer of saying that if you're able to find that resonant rate for you, then that's probably going to be a good gauge for the pacing of breathing. And again, you and I and Patrick have talked about this before, about how biofeedback has done really like a lot of work and looking at changing the cadence of breathing, but really hasn't placed as much emphasis on the biomechanics and biochemistry of breathing. So for me, again, this is kind of a personal opinion, and then I'm going to punt it over to you. And I don't know necessarily I'd say an opinion. I think we could confound this in science is that if you do find your resonant rate of breathing 
Um, so for me, five breaths per minute. And then you enhance your breathing mechanics and you enhance your bio, your breathing chemistry or your biochemistry. Then that combination is what I have found to typically be the best pattern for me. And again, I think we're all, you know, just organically built differently than one another. But for me, it is a matter of breathing LSD, now, which we talked about again in the last podcast. So I'm not going to go too much into LSD breathing, but it's breathing LSD without the drugs uh, or with the drugs. I don't know. Now, I probably shouldn't say that the investors of the company like, you guys are doing LSD there? No. Uh, so uh, it's a combination of LSD breathing and then also too just following that resonant rate. And that can be a little bit tricky sometimes because for me, like breathing uh, really lightly and then staying within that resonant rate um, is, is something that can be, it takes a little bit of practice and time. And what I've found too is that if I find that um, my body intuitively is just telling me like right now the resonant rate is not going to amplify um, kind of your subjective response to stress as, as much as you just kind of like staying slow in cadence, but not kind of like st- sitting on that five uh, breaths per minute um, pacing, then I'll do it. I kind of really like to tune in intuitively because we have to remember that just because something uh, can be objective doesn't mean that objective needs to be the only outlet. Like our subjective experience of how it feels in that moment is really important. So again, I'm going to hush up because that was a long winded way of me kind of like my pitch for resonant breathing, my pitch for LST breathing. Uh, What say you on that one, Patrick? I think we should look at some fundamentals Mm -hmm. here. Um, Melissa is asking, how do we optimize heart rate variability? Maybe stop doing some things that are causing it to be, um, to be reduced and one would be having sleep disorder mm. breathing and maybe here's a question Jay that if somebody has obstructive sleep apnea or heavy snoring or insomnia or upper airway resistance syndrome and it has been shown in recent enough studies that especially with obstructive sleep apnea that's when the individual either stops breathing wholly during sleep or they have a partial reduction mm-hmm in the flow of their breathing during sleep due to collapse of the upper airways, that this reduces heart rate variability. There must be some proportion of the population who have obstructive sleep apnea because it affects about 30% of men and it affects about 10% of females up to about 50 years of age. And then postmenopausal women, it multiplies by about 200, 300%. That's crazy. That one could have sleep disorder breathing, which is causing HRV to be reduced. And then they are practicing optimizing their breathing during the day, breathing at a cadence. So on one hand, they're making improvements, but on the other hand, their sleep is holding them back. And 50% of the adult population are waking up at a dry mouth in the morning. That is just their own observation over the last 20 years. How do we have to improve sleep? And getting the mouth closed and the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth and breathing in and out through the nose. And also using breath the whole time during wakefulness as an indicator of functional breathing patterns. And I know we've spoken about this, but this also ties in with the sensitivity of the bar reflex. So we can get an indicator of the chemosensitivity of the body to carbon dioxide, which we've spoken about today, that individuals who are very sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide typically will have a lower breath toll time. And when you have a lower breath toll time and you're overly sensitive to the of the body to carbon dioxide, So if you have, there's an inverse relationship. We want as a very sensitive bar reflex, but we want to reduce sensitivity to carbon Mm -hmm. dioxide. 
Individuals who are overly sensitive to carbon dioxide have a reduced sensitivity of the bar reflex and vice mm-hmm. versa. Individuals with a reduced sensitivity to carbon dioxide have an increased sensitivity of the bar reflex. That is there a way for people to bring it into their way of life, to adopt simple breathing strategies and awareness? Are they waking up at a dry mouth in the morning? Before they go to sleep, are they in hyperarousal? Are they looking at their screens? Mm. Or do they spend some time just down-regulating? And like, it was really yourself that brought me into the whole significance of air mm-hmm. hunger. And when we breathe light, that we are reducing the volume of air that we are breathing and the impact that that is having on HRV. While during the exercise, of course, the air hunger can initiate a small stress mm-hmm. response. So HRV can drop during the exercise, but post-exercise, then you would expect HRV to Indeed. come up that there's different ways of doing it. And maybe the the best way to do it is the way that we can incorporate into our way of life. So for Melissa too, would it make a difference if she was to do physical exercise with the mouth closed and there's going to be an increased carbon dioxide in the blood with nasal breathing versus mouth breathing? Can we stimulate the vagus nerve during physical exercise? Can we um, improve vagal tone and increase heart rate variability by breathing differently during physical exercise? Or do we have to be breathing during rest? There's kind of, it's an interesting topic, really. Yeah, no, it it is. And, you know, one of the things to kind of keep in mind, (laughs) excuse me, and I I love that you mentioned kind of like we we think about kind of like what we're doing throughout the day and how that affects um, kind of overall nervous system resilience. You know, HRV is a proxy of nervous system resilience and the human stress response. But if we don't take into consideration some of these other variables, like we don't take kind of like the broader lens, holistic, integrated perspective and look at things like how sleep could impact. And I mean, we're talking about a third of our life here. Uh, This is a major category. Uh, Then we could be doing ourselves a huge disservice. So it's not going to, uh, if anybody has any sleep related difficulties, and especially if they have something like sleep uh, apnea or insomnia as well, like it's not saying that like, you know, you shouldn't be doing breath work throughout the day because it's not going to, it's kind of going to go by the wayside. That's not the case. But what we are saying though, is that there are some huge aspects of overall health and well-being, like including sleep that do not need uh, to be pushed aside. Um, these are things that really need to be addressed. And if we want to optimize health and well-being, being that that's a really, really important category because, you know, we, again, this is, goes back to the kind of what Hanu health is identified as being the four pillars of health, right? It's like nutrition. What are we putting into our bodies? We look at sleep, we look at exercise and recovery, and then we look at stress and those four components. And, you know, you could, you know, place some other things here and there, obviously, but we think those are four huge pillars of health that when one of them is kind of dysfunctional, it's going to impact all of them. Uh, but when all of them are kind of like in, um, uh, in collaboration with one another, they're kind of working synergistically with one another. And that's when we can have an optimal sense of health. So sleep is an absolutely huge one that I feel like everybody kind of like conceptually knows, like it's really important to do, but then like actually like putting something into action is, is a little bit more difficult for people. Uh, But remember, this is a third of your life. And if we really want to dedicate a third of our life to improving health, uh, then sleep has to be like the low hanging fruit that you can engage in. And so like, I think to, you know, kind of, to your point, engaging in mouth taping, um, having really good pre-bed rituals, uh, doing things um, that help to monitor sleep architecture and looking at heart rate variability fluctuation over the overnight. Like, these are things that I feel like anybody should be engaging in if they're looking to maximize the benefit of their breathwork practice. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, 
Just on that question, if, if one was to go for a walk with their mouth open and mouth breathing is typically engaging more upper chest breathing and faster breathing rate, which is very normal with mouth breathing, would it increase sympathetic drive? I know with during physical exercise, it's going to, it's a stress response involved anyway. That there's a paper that was written back in 1996 by Travis and Dulliard looking at flow states. And they found that individuals who did their physical exercise with the mouth closed, that they were more likely to achieve that, that coveted flow state, which could imply that there's a balance in the autonomic nervous system, mm-hmm. that you're, you're alert and you're relaxed at the same time, that you're fully immersed in the present moment, that the, the runner and the race become one, that there's no differentiation between the individual and the task at hand. That by changing our breathing during the task that we're already doing, and if we have the understanding, so we spoke about sleep, getting the mouth closed, having the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth can be very important as well because it helps open up the airways. Um, Breathing through the nose during physical exercise. Tapping into our breathing at different times during the day. Kind of, I was reading a, a study yesterday, and it was a Belgian study, and it was looking at 51 business students who, and it was testing different breathing rates prior to making a difficult decision. Mm-hmm. So they divided the group of 51 students into two groups. And in one group, they gave them a five, two, seven breathing mm-hmm. exercise. Breathe in for five seconds, hold for two seconds and exhale for seven seconds. The second group was give sham. So placebo or control group. And the two groups then were put to a stressor. And it was the group who did the breathing exercises for only two minutes, Jay. Wow. Two minutes of breathing exercises, their business decision-making increased. And we were talking about this amongst our own instructors because you can imagine there's plenty of people who are in business. And the first thing that they're thinking to themselves, I don't have time to spend any time on my breathing. But if they realize that, there's a good potential of making good, solid or better decisions um, by bringing that balance to the nervous system. And it it was in terms of increasing vagal tone, but there's different ways of doing it. What about the person who's going around with their mouth open all day by getting them to breathe through their nose? The person who is conscious of breathing fast and hard, and they're just making a gentle and slow, gentle and kind of, taking attention onto their breathing. And every now and again, even for 90 seconds, they're taking a soft breath in. They're having a relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. In other Mm. words, is improving and optimizing heart rate variability, is it the formal practice or is it the everyday practice that we bring into Mm. our everyday life to develop that habit that it becomes part of us? Yeah, and I I think it's both. I mean, I think it's it's really both. But the the thing that people think is that they need to or they have to devote kind of that that time. And what that means, though, is if they think that way, then they end up not doing it um, and and they end up not doing anything. Um, Or it's like, no, let's kind of actually start with the framework of just doing small bits of it. And then if we need to or want to build in something formally, we do it. So I'm always kind of more of an advocate of like, let's build in what you can do throughout the day, just being more conscientious of, of breathing, um, increasing heart rate variability in a matter of two minutes, like you mentioned, because we can access that really quickly. And the more and more we train with it, and the more and more we do it on, let's, let's say, more of an informal basis, 
we can still uh, create a better level of awareness and strength and speed and increasing our response. Now, if we add in the formal practice on top of it, then that's kind of like the, I almost see like that as like the icing on top of the cake. But I realized too, that that as being kind of our first established place is probably not the best place to start. And the reason being, Patrick, is because I've seen this happen in mindfulness and meditation practices. People think, oh, well, the starting place is that you have to at least do, let's say just even a sh- what's considered a short-term meditation, 10 to 15 minutes, that might still be too much for people. But what if we said, and I love this, this is Dan Harris's uh, comment. Dan Harris is, he said, I start with one second and I say, okay, I can do one second. And if after one second, I'm like, I can go more, maybe I'll take it to five seconds or 10 seconds. And that sounds kind of like I'm joking, but it's actually probably not that bad of a place. That's cool. That's great. Yeah, actually. Start with one yeah. second. It's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you want to argue with me that you can't do one second? Like, no, nobody can pull that. I don't care if you're Elon Musk and you're, you know, you're working whatever, you know, 22 hours a day, you got one second that you could do it. And, and, and I think that's the better place to start. And what you find though, is that people get more of a drive and a hunger for it because they're like, Ooh, if this works like in the matter of a minute or two minutes, which is really short, what's going to happen if I really change things to 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day uh, of formal practice? Like people just get really interested in it. I'm sure that's why a lot of people are drawn to like oxygen advantages like instructors is that, you know, maybe they did start off with an hour long practice. Maybe, I don't know, I mean, probably not, but maybe, but it might just be like, oh, they, you know, dip the feet in the water a little bit and they're all like, oh, this is pretty cool. I like this. And then they're like, okay, I got my toes in the water. Now let me go, you know, ankle deep, calf deep, you know, up to my my waist. All right. Now I'm in fully. Like I feel like I've drank in the Kool-Aid. Um, and, and I, and I, and I think that that's just kind of a natural kind of human process. If we try to throw too much onto somebody at once and, you know, you and I've talked about this before, then people are just like, nah, it's too much. I'm not going to do it. And so that's why so many people, and this is not for me to kind of like get at like, you know, the meditation apps, but calm and headspace don't have a ton of people that start it, like finish off like their year of subscription, like still doing like 10, 15, 30 minute meditations each day. It just doesn't work that way. What you actually see is that they're more, their primary hits are like the two minute ones, like the five minute ones that really most people can build in. So sorry for my long, you know, winded diatribe slash soapbox on kind of, you know, what, what we should do in terms of kind of like, you know, breath work practice practices or kind of timing of practice. But I just think again, like the best one uh, for you is the one that you do. And we mentioned that last time. So yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a huge point. One thing I want to say, uh, you know, before we, we switch gears uh, here to the next question is that Melissa also asked about like focusing on exhales versus inhales. Like, should we kind of like change the timing up? Uh, one thing that I'll mention uh, from a heart rate variability biofeedback perspective, like when we look at the research is that there's actually not a ton of great research that says that like extend Extending the exhalation is going to significantly raise heart rate variability. Uh, but what we do know is what happens physiologically, <clears throat> which is that we do see some increase in HRV when we extend the exhalation. And the reason being, just to kind of like paint the picture really, really quickly, is that when people are engaging in a breath cycle, when they inhale, um, a lot of people think, oh, that means like, you know, the heart rate increases. So the gas pedal is being pressed on the sympathetic nervous system is engaged. It's actually not the case. The case is that the, uh, the brake pad 
that is being relinquished a little bit. So the vagal brake or the parasympathetic nervous system is taking the foot off the brake. The gas pedal is not necessarily being pushed down, but the brake is being uh, pulled off. And then the heart rate increases. And then as we exhale, the brake is pressed downward. As we extend the exhale, we can continue to press that brake, which a lot of people subjectively experience as more relaxing than doing, let's say, like even breathing or five in, five out. People like that four, six, or as you mentioned earlier, a five, seven breath. Uh, And then we do see some level of increase in HRV, but there's no studies that I've seen um, that uh, to this date that have indicated that you can significantly increase HRV through an extended exhalation. A lot of the research is actually just like it's preference for some people that can significantly raise HRV with even breathing compared to exhalation. And then for some people, it's the flip flop or the inverse of that. For me, I'm like, I'm such an extended exhalation guy. Like I like, again, five breaths per minute is my RF for my resonant frequency. So that's a five second inhale and a seven second second exhale. And for me, it is just so comforting to kind of like extend that exhale. I can just feel it. I feel my heart rate drop lower and I see it too. But again, I think it's all going to depend on, on the person. So didn't know if you have anything else to mention there or what you've seen, Patrick, but I just thought I'd clarify that in because a lot of people get confused and say like, oh, you have to extend the exhale. It's not necessarily the case, but I find for a bulk majority of people, they like that subjective feel and they will see a slight increase in HRV when they extend the exhale. The bow score is going to influence the, the person's ability to have an extended mm. exhale. Um, when we look at people, and maybe I'm just taking it to the extreme here, people with labored breathing, people with very poor uh, functioning of the autonomic nervous system, they've got a low bow score, maybe five mm-hmm. seconds. These individuals will find it quite difficult to have that slow and prolonged exhalation. So maybe doing a small breath hold could be something to help just, you know, to get the process going. The other aspect, Jay, is maybe for people just to locate their their pulse rate. So locate the carotid Mm -hmm. artery just at the angle of the jaw and experiment with your breathing a little bit. So see what happens when you change your breathing patterns. You know, if you breathe faster, what happens to your Mm -hmm. pulse rate? Mm -hmm. And if you start to breathe slower, what happens to your pulse rate? And if you take a fast breath in and a really, really slow and prolonged breath out, what happens to your pulse rate during the inhalation versus the exhalation? And the human body is an amazing thing because... When you think the heart is efficient as well, the heart doesn't want to be pumping unnecessarily. So the heart is pumping quicker when the lungs are richest with oxygen. So as we're drawing air into the body, the heart rate increases because that, of course, the heart rate wants to be pumping this oxygenated blood. And then during the exhalation, it's almost that the heart is taking a little bit Mm -hmm. of a rest. Mm -hmm. So it's conserving energy. And so, yeah, so it's always coming back to it's a miraculous what we have. All of that 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 real estate just underneath the neck you know that most of us don't pay right. any attention to indeed that there's something amazing going oh, there's on there's a lot there. going on there this is this is this is the self-awareness that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, no, indeed. You know, it's really funny, kind of the amount of what is going on through this area. If anybody's watching this, uh, you know, on our YouTube channel when we release that, uh, which is kind of our hint, hint. Hopefully, it'll be out by the time this podcast is here. Uh, but we're kind of showing the uh, the the portion from the chin down to uh, let's say the chest or even the sternum area. But I would say more more the neckline. You know, what's crazy is being able to find the carotid artery for most people is pretty easily. But also too, kind of all the lateral sides of the neck. I mean, that's where your innervations 
nerves and the extensions of your vagus nerve is. I mean, it runs on both sides of the neck. And so uh, there's a lot going on there um, that we can utilize um, as our ability, you know, to, uh, you know, detect it may be a little bit lower initially um, because we've come disconnected to that. You know, you place it in feel, but kind of like we mentioned earlier, uh, kind of pulling things full circle is that the more and more you kind of check in with those things, you're going to develop a better sense of interoception and you're just kind of feel it. And I might, that might sound really weird to people, especially like just like feeling your heart rate. They're like, well, I thought if you felt your heart rate, that's kind of like a pounding heart or palpitations. At times it may feel like that, but then when you feel like the pay, like when you can sense the pace is not like a pounding, like, you know, arrhythmic or uh, even, you know, just kind of a racing heart, uh, then you, what you'll find is, is that you can tune in really quickly to your body and give a great assessment of kind of what it's going on right in that moment. So yeah, a lot going on in between there that people need to uh, not take for granted. That's good real estate for sure. So yeah. Awesome. Melissa, thanks so much for that question. That was really great. Uh, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're like an hour and 21 minutes into this and I know we need to wrap things up. So you guys all probably are like, we came to the Q and a and we got one question. Um, hopefully all the other information that we provided was quite valuable. So yeah, we're going to leave you at one Q and a question today. Uh, we've got mo- much more in the docket and you know, one of the things that I can do too, and that what we have been doing, so if anybody hasn't been listening, uh, uh, I will tune you into this, is that we're recording like HRV specific Q&A episodes. And so some of the questions too, that if we find them to be a little bit more HRV oriented, uh, we can always push them to those. Uh, but otherwise, like we'll keep going with the Q&A. Um, again, we hope that this was really valuable for people. Uh, and you know, whatever. We did one question, like I'm cool with it, <laughs> Patrick. Are you cool with it? <laughs> I think it's good. I think we had a great chat. I, so I agree. I totally, totally agree. So what we're going to do, we're going to wrap it up today. Um, hopefully, again, you guys have learned some valuable information that you can take it now, put the boots on the ground and get going and practicing. Again, like, you know, if we leave you with anything today, it's like, you know, the best practice is the practice you do. Um, so just find a way to incorporate it throughout the day. Uh, you know, one of the things I think I've mentioned this before, maybe I mentioned on a different podcast. I don't know. You know, when you do so many podcasts, like you kind of forget what you've said and what you haven't said is that like I have actually become so conditioned to breathe in my car, like to do breath work in my car. Uh, like every single time I sit in, in, in into my car, I start it and put on the driver's seat. Like my body just gets into the gear. Like I'm breathing five, seven, like I'm breathing really light. I'm fully kind of immersed in kind of that situation. I'm also paying attention to the road. I mean, just in case anybody's wondering, hopefully not, you know, mowing over people. That would not be a good idea. But for me, it's just this, this natural inclination to get to it. So find those places that just make sense where you're like, I need to kill two birds with one stone. Like I'm driving, like it's a super like boring, like almost like you could convince yourself like waste of time. Cause sometimes it is, especially if you're just sitting in traffic, uh, on your commute home, like use that as the opportunity to really engage in like good nervous system, stress resiliency through, through breathing. So again, I think that's a, the huge take home today. So as we kind of wrap up again, like please uh, make sure that if you haven't headed uh, to this already, follow us on Instagram at Hanu health, uh, follow Patrick um, at oxygen advantage at Buteco clinic. And then my uh, uh, handle on uh, Instagram is at Dr. J Wiles. Please remember too, like if we read your review, which I'm about to do right now on the podcast, then we will will send you out an amazing package. And our package is actually expanded. So Patrick uh, was uh, gracious enough to sign copies of his book, Atomic Focus, that again, if we read your review on uh, on this podcast, we're going to send you that. We're also going to send you a huge supply of myotape, which is Patrick's uh, mouth tape that we that I wear every single night. Uh, do you still wear your own tape? I'm going to call you out on it. Do you wear yours every single night, Patrick? 
Yeah, no, honestly, I do. Um, because part of the reason being is what, what I want to do is I need to experience what the, the user is experiencing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's the, the best way yeah, to know it. Yeah, to yeah know no, it, for know. sure, for sure. Yeah. And so for me, I wear it every every single night. So we're going to send you that. We'll send you some Hanu Health gear, you know, aluminum bottle, uh, stress balls, die cut stickers. All you got to do again is uh, write us a five star review on Apple. And then if we read your name here today, email us podcast at Hanu Health. Say, hey, I was the person who you read on uh, the podcast with patrick uh here's my address and then we'll send you that gear package so today is uh comes from vic amin v-i-k-a-m-i-n vic amin and it said glad i found you today so i'm almost like oh man did they find us organically those are the best ones it's like when like they don't necessarily follow us on instagram or something they just are like man i came across your podcast so i was like oh i like this one so uh vic amin said low-hanging fruits are the best This is the one case where advice and the action sound too good to be true, but follow the breath work road and you are on the path to better health. I think that's a really good one. I love it. I really do hope they found us organically. So yeah, good stuff. Awesome. Well, again, email us podcast at hanuhealth.com. If you're not a part of the wait list, hanuhealth.com slash wait list. I mean, we got so many good things coming. Patrick, we'll call it a day today. Hey, great uh, chatting with you. Awesome information through and through. Uh, Man, glad to have you on again, my friend. Pleasure, James. Awesome. All right, guys, we'll be back again next month with another Q&A. But as you probably already know, every single Friday, we release a podcast where I interview leading guests uh, in the field of breath work, you know, stress, resiliency, health and wellness. So stay tuned to next week. But Patrick, I will uh, see you next month, my friend. Great. Looking forward to it. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less. Oh,